This is John 6, 20, starting in 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent me. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except me Uh, who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give Give for the life of the world is my flesh. Continuing in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would not, who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he is one of the twelve who was going to betray him. This is God's word. Pastor Brandon just uh, finished the series, uh, The Gospel and for All of Life, and next week he will begin a series on 1 John, Abiding in Christ. So this week I got to choose one that I thought I might be able to preach in about seven and a half hours or so. You know, the gospel is the greatest news possible. God creates humanity in his image. He places us in a paradise, a perfect world. Yet we, we break it by rebelling against him, by usurping his throne in our lives, by joining Eve and saying, I will be like God. I will determine good and evil for my own life. And so we went our own way, and the world we live in today has been warped, not the world God created. But God looked at us, our rebellion, and he wept over us at what had happened to us. But he did more. He acted. He stepped into humanity, took off his royal robes. He became man, lived among us, suffered, and was put to death by us in our rebellion against God. But he rose from the dead so that everyone could be made a new creature in Christ and that one day he would make that wor- our world perfect again. That is incredible news. And you'd want, there are some who believe it and some who don't believe it. And you wonder, why, why wouldn't people believe such great news? And, and there's a myriad of reasons. Most revolve around intellectual questions 
or a disconnect, a seeming disconnect between what the Bible seems to say and the world we live in. But these, these reasons are not new to the 21st century. They were there in Capernaum two millennia ago. And Jesus had the answer, and he has the answer to our questions, our objections, and reasons why we don't believe today. Our Father, only your Spirit can, can illumine us and bring our hearts to say amen to your word. Because the natural proclivity is to say, no, Lord. But open us up today. Open us up to the word of truth. Let the sword of its spirit, the word of God, do its work in our lives today. In Christ we pray, amen. One sermon cannot cover all the reasons people don't believe. But we see in this passage five reasons. And hopefully if we see that Jesus is really the answer and has the answer for these five reasons, we can have confidence that he has answers to every objection. Now, let's begin by saying the lack of evidence is not a reason for people rejecting Christ. We see it in this passage. Jesus has just taken five loaves of bread, two fish about the size of sardines, And he has fed 5,000 men in addition to women and children. The miracle is so astounding that the scripture says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this proof of who Jesus was, was so great that the the massive crowd declared that he was the prophet that Moses had foretold, the one they were waiting for. And he was so great, they wanted to make him king, and they were so adamant about that that Jesus actually had to escape to get away from them. See, the proof was there, and they believed. And yet we read at the end of the chapter, his disciples, all but twelve, walked away from him. So it wasn't a lack of evidence. There were other reasons. And the same is true today. People, there's enough evidence to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. We just celebrated Christmas. There was enough evidence for those people in the early centuries to begin a celebration that has captured the entire world. Jesus is real. We date our calendar around Jesus' birth. He was real. There was evidence that he is who he said he was, so much so that that our world has been transformed by it and around it. No, it's not evidence. It's what's going on in our hearts. Skeptic Aldous Huxley said this, Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We don't know because we don't want to know. It's our will that decides how and upon what subjects we will use our intelligence. No philosophy is completely disinterested. The pure love of truth is always mingled to some extent with the need consciously or unconsciously felt by even the noblest and most intelligent philosophers. What he has said is philosophers 
study and come to conclusions they really want to. Um, an NYU professor of philosophy and law said this, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right on my behalf. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. It's not about the evidence. It's about the dynamic of what's going on in our hearts. Two brothers raised in the church, rejected the church, uh, began to see and espouse that all that was taught in the Bible were fanciful uh, myths and harmful to us. One of them ended up writing the book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Christopher Hitchens. His brother Peter wrote, The Rage Against God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith. One of the most renowned atheists, rejecting the faith, his brother, same evidence, being transformed by the faith. It's really what's going on in our hearts. It's not about the evidence. So what is it that's going on inside hearts that, that hold off Jesus? And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see five reasons in this passage why our hearts want to say no to Jesus. Uh, the first is that Jesus isn't who we want him to be. The people were all excited about Jesus. They want to make him king because he fed them 5,000. When they engage him in conversation, they talked about how Moses fed them in the wilderness and how you know Jesus can, has duplicated that miracle and he can continue to provide for them physically. And as soon as Jesus says, that's what I'm not about, I'm about the spiritual dimension. I'm about me being the bread of life. Me doing the miracle was just the sign pointing to who I am as your bread of life in the spiritual dimensions. And, and at that point, they react. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father sent his seal. See, you're seeking me because you ate bread. That's not what I'm about. And the same reason is there today. Jesus isn't who a lot of people want him to be. We want him to rescue us. We want him to make things right, and he always doesn't do that. Uh, C. Michael Patton, who did a study on why people raised in the church are, are turning against the faith, and he says experiential challenges is one of the biggest reasons. These types of challenges come from God's actions or lack thereof in our lives. This is exemplified by prayers that don't get answered. The apparent silence of God in a person's experience or related to the former, a tragedy out of which you or someone else was not rescued. 
we close our hearts because we're disappointed by God. We're disappointed by Christ because life has really dealt us some blows that are hard to handle. It's what leads to the question, if there is a loving God, why is there so much suffering and evil in our world? Jesus is not immune to our suffering. Jesus weeps over what he sees. When he goes to Lazarus' tomb, his best friend has died. He weeps when he sees Mary. And the word weeps is he cries loudly. He knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yet he wept over death itself. When Jesus came and looked down on Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen to Jerusalem. And he weeps over Jerusalem. Jesus sees the suffering. He knows it's a result of rejection of him and he weeps over this world and he felt so strongly he entered into our world to take all the suffering that we deserve for our sin. He took that upon himself so he could one day bring us a world where there is no suffering, where every tear is wiped away. It's just not today. In the meantime, he's offered us something greater than that perfect world. He's offered himself a living, intimate relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ. The most important thing in life is relationships, and he's offering that a perfect love relationship with him that will then lead us in love relationships with one another as Christ has with us. That's God's plan, to work first in us spiritually. We appreciate that dimension. He will come take the suffering away. But in the meantime, he's giving us himself. You know, Jesus isn't who we want him to be. And sometimes we reinvent Jesus to be what we want him to be. We'll quote Jesus' words to the woman caught in adultery. It says, nobody's condemned you, neither do I condemn you. But we leave out, go and sin no more. We speak of God's love in his grace, but we leave off his holiness and his justice. We say he's the Lord of the universe, but we don't want him as the Lord of our lives. He, he shouldn't be imposing himself that way. So some of us just outright reject him. Others reinvent him into a Jesus who is not. But it's what happens in our hearts is Jesus is not who we want him to be. The second reason is that it's, we seem to have be allergic to grace. Because as Jesus continues, uh, they say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him who is sent. So the people naturally say, okay, Jesus, we want what you're, you know, we, how do we get what you're doing? What work must we do? And Jesus says, it's not works. It's believing in me. These are the people who walk away. See, we 
we live by works. And grace is difficult for us. Every religion in the world outside of Christianity is in some ways a works religion where people get to God by what they do. Christianity is the only faith where we get to God by what he has done for us. But we struggle with that because most people think Christianity teaches the good people get to heaven and the bad people don't. The cults, Christian cults, all take the words of Scripture and twist them from grace to some sense of work salvation. Many churches that talk about the crucifixion of Christ say, oh, no, no, no. The crucifixion is not about Jesus Christ being our substitute and taking our sin. No, no, no. It's not about that. It's about Jesus being a model of following God that we need to do in order to know God. Even Christians, the book of Galatians shows how quickly we trade in grace for a works, moralism way of living. It's just natural to us. Why is it? Why is that so? Why do we need to be saved by works when God's offering salvation as a gift? It's because fallen people don't want to acknowledge we're fallen. There's a pride in earning it. We see that in in the parable where Jesus talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector who go up and to pray. And we hear the, uh, the Pharisee's words. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What do you hear in that work salvation? A man who is filled with himself, who is arrogant and prideful about his ability to earn his way to God in his looking down in judgment on the tax collector and all other sinners. There's a pride when we earn our salvation. It isn't in the tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We have a hard time saying that. That I don't deserve salvation. I need a savior. I am so lost. I am so sinful. We're allergic to grace. I've asked many people, many unbelievers, the question, if you were to stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Every person except one said, in some way or another, it's because I'm a good person, because I go to church, because I'm religious, because I help others, I try not to sin. We're works-oriented. The one person who said, oh, God has to be merciful to me, I'm a sinner, accepted Christ three minutes later. It's by grace, not by works, but... We can't have pride in that, in grace. So a third reason that builds a barrier in our hearts to Christ is that we always want another sign. So they say to Jesus, then what sign do you give that we may believe in you? What work do you perform? 
Now think about this. He just fed maybe 13, 15,000 people with five loaves of bread. The people believed it. They saw it. They witnessed it. They tasted it so much so they wanted more of it and they wanted to make him king. They declared him the prophet. And they say, "Uh, what sign do you offer us? The signs that Jesus gives are not enough. We always need one more. It's our excuse. I would believe if God literally showed himself to us. I remember a conversation with one man. I said, if God were real, what would would you expect of him? I'd expect him to live here and walk among us and not give us his word, but teach us and so that we understand exactly what he means when he says something. Good. Do you know that he did become man and he did walk among us and he did teach and he did explain? But that's not enough. We need that to happen right now for each one of us. We always need another sign. The Pharisees were like that. They witnessed Jesus healing uh, the lame, uh, casting out demons, cleansing the leper, giving sight to the blind, actually um, bringing someone back from the dead. And you know what they said? Show us a sign. It's not enough. What you want to give us is not enough. And Jesus said... You're an evil and adulterous generation. I'll give you one sign. It's the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the inner earth for three days and three nights. He's speaking of his resurrection. Paul says the entire Christian faith rises or falls on the resurrection. There are plenty of books that speak and give the evidence of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can begin with N.T. Wright's book on it, where he answers just about every question, objection that the scholars have raised. The evidence is there. Jesus is raised, but we need something more. Jesus has worked in the lives of believers. He worked in the lives of these disciples. They saw the bread, but they don't look back at the bread and what Jesus did. They always say, what about now? Do you know Jesus Christ has worked miracles around you and most of you in you? And yet we might want something more. We fail to look back. And I encourage you, do an inventory sometime. Stop and look back at all the works of God in your life and around you that you have seen. Starting with me, my miracle conversion. Miracle conversion of my brother. Miracle conversion of my father-in-law. Miracle of of what God did to get me to share gospel with a woman who was was, uh, about to commit suicide, who ended up accepting Christ. Miracles on the bedside that I've seen time and time and time again where a believer who is about to pass into God's presence has a supernatural experience of God and dies in perfect peace and comfort. We see them all. You know, one of the reasons our younger people are not accepting Christ is they say, where's the supernatural? We have seen it. We need to get in touch with that and share that. And not, let's get another sign. And so it continues, and Jesus says, 
He's the bread of life. And the response in verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. See, a fourth reason people to harden their hearts to Jesus is he's too spiritual. They liked the physical. They liked the bread. But he is too spiritual. They're not interested in that dimension. I found that in my my oldest brother. Uh, He was living the high life in California. And uh, I saw him when I was in seminary. And I shared about Christ. And he said, you know, that all sounds right and that all sounds true. And, you know, yeah, it seems like I could get eternal life if I put my faith in Christ. But my life is going so good now. What can he do for me right now? What investments will he make successful if I accept him right now? See, at that time in his life, Jesus was too spiritual. The, the followers, the crowds, didn't want to invest themselves in truly understanding what Jesus meant when he said, I'm the bread of life. There's a lot of people today who stay in the physical dimension. What can he do here and now? And they don't want to invest themselves in the spiritual dimension to really understand who Christ is and what that means for us. I had another brother who was asked the question, do you believe in Jesus? And he said, I believe in science. A lot of people say that. I believe in science. Science gives us the answer. Does it? See, science, Jesus is too spiritual. You can't study Jesus. Can't put him in a petri dish. See, the problem with believing in science is science is ever-changing. There's always new discoveries. There's things they've never seen before. They're always changing their theories. They're far off from having any ultimate truth. But more so, science cannot answer the biggest and deepest questions in life. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Who am I? Why is love so central to to all of life? If evolution, (laughs) the survival of the fittest, was the way we got here. What is truth? Why do I feel that this life is not enough? There must be something beyond. Science can't answer those questions. Jesus does. And the fifth reason is kind of the opposite. Jesus is too human. Uh, Verse 42. And they said... Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Now does he now say, I came down from heaven? I mean, we can understand the shock. This is a person we knew. We knew his father. We knew his mother. He says he's coming from heaven. We know he had a physical birth. Uh, I I can't believe this supernatural element to Jesus. He is too human. A lot of people stumble over that today. They're saying these stories about Jesus, a virgin birth, a resurrection from the dead, him actually bringing people back to life, um, these, these can't be true. 
it's too supernatural. He was a man. And just about every scholar accepts the fact that Jesus was a man. He lived, he died at the hands of the Romans. And that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was preached within a half a year of his, his death. And yet they say, he couldn't be God. Uh, Duke New Testament professor Bart Ehrman's written the book, How Jesus Became God. See, Jesus can't be God, so somehow the disciples made him into God. And he focuses on how most of the divine claims of Jesus are in the book of John. And he says John was written about 95 A.D. And so what happened was the early disciples, they really weren't uh, touting the deity of Christ. And it was over time that John finally evolved Christ into God. The problem is that Paul in his letters, which were so much earlier, uh, within two decades of Jesus' death, and the other Gospels do teach the same thing. In fact, Bart Ehrman's mentor, Princeton New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger, points out all of the weaknesses and fallacies of Ehrman's arguments and his missing what Paul in the other Gospels said But then he sums it up by simply saying, how did the first century Jews who actually crucified Jesus, what did they believe? And he points out that they said, he says, the attitude of orthodox Jewish piety is summed up in the taunt which was flung at Jesus as he hung on the cross. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Jesus was crucified for blasphemy, for making himself equal to God. The term son of God meant you were divine. And so they said very clearly, you declared yourself the son of God. Prove it to us by taking yourself off the cross. Jesus claimed to be God. But that's too, he's too human for that to many people. Um, Bono. Not the New Testament scholar, not a New Testament scholar, but one who builds on New Testament scholarship. In an interview about his faith in Christ, he said, "Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this: He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Mohammed, Buddha, or Confucius, but actually." Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, that's what's far-fetched to me. Jesus does not allow us the option of saying he's only human. Either he is the nutcase or he is the Son of God. So we've been looking at Five reasons that really our hearts turn off 
to the evidence. We don't disbelieve because of the evidence. It's because there's a barrier in our hearts. And that's because he isn't what we want him to be. We are allergic to grace. We always seek another sign. He's too spiritual. He's too human. We've only looked at five reasons, but, but I hope by looking at the five reasons and seeing Jesus' answers that you have confidence that Christ has answers for every objection. I hope that you have some information you can share with people you know who are struggling with faith. I hope that some of these thoughts may come back to you in the times you doubt and start to wrestle with faith. And I hope that you realize because you do believe there's no reason to be arrogant, only reasons to be humble. Because Jesus said, no one comes to the Father No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, we didn't believe because we were smarter. We were more humble. We were more willing to admit we're sinners than others. No. There's a barrier in all of our hearts that God allowed the Spirit of God to penetrate. That's why we believe. He melted the hard heart and allowed faith to come in. You see, it is Christ who transformed the evangelist who shared Jesus with you. It is the Holy Spirit who said to you, this is God's word when the Bible was spoken. It's the Holy Spirit who convicted you of sin, righteousness, and judgment that led you to the point of saying, I am in desperate need of a Savior. It is the Father who drew you to the faith in Jesus Christ where you said, I need Christ as my Savior. I believe he is my Savior. It is God, God, God all the way, not you. In fact, what you did to become a Christian was to say, I'm just like the tax collector. There's nothing in me that I could boast about before God. I am in desperate need. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You are not the hero of your faith journey. Jesus is. By grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, so no one would boast. Our Father, we thank you once again that what you spoke 2,000, 3,000 years ago is just as true today, just as relevant, and your spirit makes it just as alive. Use it in our lives. May what we learned this morning not sit here in our pews with us, but walk out into a world that desperately needs Christ. Amen.